Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Okay. We have worked for six weeks through the doctrine of Revelation, which is uh, God teaching us through the pages of Scripture, general revelation as well, special revelation. And uh, where we are tonight is the last of those sessions on the doctrine of Revelation. So when we come back in a couple of weeks, uh, as I mentioned before, I'll be out of town next week. So uh, we've called in, we've called in uh, the bench, or we've called in, as he told us, told me earlier today, we've called in a heavy hitter. Uh, we called in Josh Pinkerton next week. Uh, he was, he was kind of letting me know that, that maybe after he teaches next week, you won't want to hear me again. So, um, so you hold him to that next Wednesday night when he comes in and shares. Um, so Josh will be here next week. And then as we pick back up the Wednesday following that, it'll be a church conference Wednesday. And I've got some, some clarity to bring to some of the elder conversation that we had had in previous weeks. And I'll speak to that a little bit in terms of some specifics. That'll be what happens that Wednesday night. And then the first Wednesday in May, we'll shift to dealing with the doctrine of God. So we'll move from the doctrine of revelation, which is God speaking through scripture and speaking through general revelation, to what can we discern about God from the pages of Scripture? Who is God? What do we discover about His attributes and His character and His nature? So that's where we're headed. Uh, tonight, we're going to close up the discussion or the, the lectures on the doctrine of Revelation with this idea of Scripture as authority. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to just warn you, this is historical. We're going to walk through some uh, challenges to authority through the pages of history. I, I, am a, I have taught history before. I've taught theology and apologetics. So I'm going to go ahead and forewarn you that this is a little bit more in my lane than maybe in terms of what you're used to in reading. If I go too fast, yell at me and stop me. If I'm over your head, that's okay. Um, some of it, I'm just going to be frank. I, I think sometimes it's my responsibility to teach our church up. Uh, rather than bring everything everything down. So if it challenges you, don't worry. It's challenged me before too. If, if there are things that you'd like to read a little more deeply about, I've got some resources that I'm going to recommend at the end that kind of drop this down in a way that we can continue to read and it be accessible. But there's a really important reason, and we'll get to it at the end, why I think it is vital that we as a body of believers not neglect the challenging uh, nature of doctrine in our own spiritual lives. I think part of the reason for the demise of Christianity in our culture is that Christianity has far too often in our culture been very bland and very weak. And I don't just mean in the way that we behave, but I mean in what we think and what we believe and what we understand about our scriptural uh, foundation. So some of it is going to be a little bit heady. I'm just going to warn you. Why history? Why are we going to start with history tonight? Because one of the things that should encourage us is the challenges to the Bible as authority are not new. Now, maybe the particular challenges we're dealing with in the 21st century, but Christians for 2,000 years have experienced challenges to the gospel and the clear teaching of the gospel and challenges in particular to the idea that God is authoritative in what he says. And what is beautiful is to just catch note of this fact. 
For 2,000 years, the church has been challenged. For 2,000 years, the doctrine of revelation has been challenged through a variety of different claims to authority. And guess what? 2,000 years later, we're sitting in a church service working through a doctrinal study because we still believe the Bible is authoritative. And people all over the world are still coming to know Jesus as Lord and Savior because the Bible tells them that they're sinners, that God is holy, and that the gospel brings them salvation. What I mean is we ought to take encouragement from the fact that the church previous has dealt with challenges. And because God is authority and because God has spoken through the pages of Scripture, the church has succeeded over those authorities or over those challenges to authority. So there's a, a moment of encouragement. What's our posture in this? Our posture comes from Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Uh, Isaiah says this, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? It's just a reminder that God's in charge. That's what Isaiah is quoting or saying. All these things my hand is made, so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Notice this, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Our posture as Christians, as we reflect on the pages of Scripture, should be one of trembling. A recognition that God has spoken to us through the pages of Scripture. And we acknowledge that in a sense of humility and recognition that He is right. N.T. Wright put it this way. That somehow when we talk about the authority of God, we mean that the authority of the triune God is exercised through Scripture. We recognize that God is the one who has authority. And this book doesn't have authority because it's a book, because it's printed words on a page. But this book has authority because it is God's statements, God's revelation, God's declarations given to us. And so if God is ultimately authoritative, if he rules, if he's the king over the kings and the Lord over the lords, which the Bible says over and over again, that the God is the living God, he's the righteous God, he's the holy God. And you move into the New Testament, Jesus has all authority, he says in Matthew chapter 12. 28. In Ephesians chapter 1, Jesus has been given the authority over all principalities and powers and nations. If Jesus has authority, if God has authority, then this book is authoritative because it is God's word spoken to us. It's his declaration. So our posture should be one of humility. What are the challenges to scriptural authority that we've seen over the ages? Let me define authority before we get started. It's not on your handout. But authority simply is this. Who has the right to say what you are to believe and how you are to behave? That's the bottom line. And, and we can see that in, in delegated authorities in our life, right? Our governing authorities, say a police officer, has the right to tell us how we're to behave and, and what we're to do in a certain circumstance that relates to the law, the same thing would be true with our national authorities or our constitution for, for in terms of how we operate as a citizen. So authority, very simply, is who has the right to tell us what we ought to believe and how we ought to behave. And it, as Christians, as followers of Jesus who believe God spoke through the Bible, the reason the Bible is authoritative for us is because God alone has the right to tell us what we ought to believe, which is found in the pages of Scripture, and by extension, how we ought to behave as a result of what he said that we ought to believe in the pages of Scripture. 
And what are the challenges to that? Let me give you a few challenges. Challenges from the early church, early church era, the first several hundred years of church history. One of the major challenges was the plurality of religious experiences. There are all sort of ideologies and, and these kind of religious uh, ideologies, religious experiences, multiple deities. So the early church came to be in a time when there were all these mystery cults in the Greco-Roman era. And all of them said different things about how you experience salvation or forgiveness or life or knowledge. And what happened was the church came in and said, no, there's a Jesus who came to die on a cross historically, actually, physically, and save you and redeem you. So the early church faced this. They also faced philosophical challenges. Things like Gnosticism. I mentioned that in my sermon this past week, a spirit matter dualism, or Platonism, which is Plato's philosophy that basically argued that uh, authority comes from a philosophical viewpoint, not from a revelational viewpoint. Plato's argument was against the Greek deities, not against the biblical deities. Nevertheless, that argument held sway in many minds that, okay, gods don't speak, because Plato's gods obviously didn't speak because they weren't really gods in the Greek uh, pantheon. But this God has spoken to us, and that was one of the challenges the early church faced. Or Neoplatonism, which is kind of a conflation of the mystery religions, the Greco-Roman mystery religions, and Plato's philosophy, where the way to get to know God is to experience some kind of mystical union, a weird experience. We could dive into all of the, the philosophical history there. It's not really important that we do so in this setting tonight. What is important to grasp is that the early church faced a variety of different opinions about who was right, who had authority, who got to say what was right. And guess what? The early church just simply believed that the Bible was God's word and told people about Jesus and kept doing that over and over again. And guess what? One of the reasons why we're unfamiliar with Platonism, Neoplatonism, and the plurality of religious experiences in the Greco-Roman world is because they don't have authority and they don't hold sway today. We're not talking about them in detail because they're not universally authoritative and true. They, they bypass their day, but we're still talking about biblical Christianity. Why? Well, it's because the Bible claims to be authoritative, and it is true. Um, the Middle Ages and the Reformation era, a major challenge to authority, the authority of Scripture in the Reformation era, at least that we're going to talk about here, is the challenge of Roman Catholicism. In Roman Catholicism, the idea was that authority rested in Scripture, but equally it rested in papal statements and or church tradition. And so that's one of the greatest problems with Roman Catholicism. It adds to Scripture. And when you add to Scripture, you change parts of Scripture, it creates problems. And so essentially, Roman Catholicism offered a substitute authority to Scripture, papal authority and papal statements. If the Roman Catholic Church had remained somewhat orthodox in doctrine and somewhat godly in behavior, that may not have been such a terrible problem. But the, the Middle Age popes, the, the popes of the Middle Ages, essentially the popes primary, uh, um, right before the Reformation history were wicked and depraved men. I mean, if Showtime can put together a, a, a show called the Borgias, which reflected on the papacy just prior to the, to the Reformation. If that can be a showtime, 
uh, television program, you know that those popes did not represent godliness and righteousness. They were wicked and depraved. I could tell you stories about those popes that would make you, I mean, just curdle you. It's just disgusting what some of them did in the name of, in the name of Christianity, and to seek after power. And so one of the reasons you had the Reformation with Luther and Calvin and others, even if we disagree with some of their theology, Protestant theology that maybe they developed, one of the reasons that that they came about was because the church was offering an authority and living immorally, the Roman Catholic Church, and the gospel wasn't being proclaimed. And so God raised up men who would say, no, the Bible is authority. And the blanks there under the Middle Ages and Reformation is sola scriptura. The five solas of the Reformation era, uh, sola scriptura, sola Christus, sola uh, gratias, which is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, from the scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Those are the five solas. The sola scriptura of the Reformation is essentially the idea that our authority rests not in a pope, not in church tradition, not in what we like to believe, but the authority rests here. This is our guidebook. This is our authority. This is our framework. And if, if by that, that, if that's what we mean by reformed, then we as a Baptist church are in the Protestant tradition. We are reformed, at least in that regard. We could debate other kind of uh, statements and ideologies about reformed theology. And we'll talk about some of those, by the way, on, on these Wednesday nights. And what that means for salvation, what that means for providence, what that means for foreknowledge and predestination and election. But in the broadest sense, we're reformed. Because we believe that our authority doesn't rest in a pope. It doesn't rest in church tradition. We believe that our authority rests here in the pages of Scripture. Uh, That's the Middle Ages and Reformation. The biggest arena of the challenge to scriptural authority, though, has come since uh, the Reformation period. It would be the Enlightenment era, and that's the next category on your list in front of us. There are a variety of blanks there. You're welcome to fill these out uh, at your leisure as I talk through several different thinkers that have kind of shaped the way we look at authority and truth and what is to be believed and what is to be accepted in the 21st century. One of the first important thinkers, and there are dozens, I'm only going to give you a handful. One of the first important thinkers is a gentleman you would know by, as Rene Descartes, and he's famous for that, that quote, I think, therefore... I am. And it's his uh, philosophical mantra. What Descartes did, though, that's important for this discussion is he separated his public theology from his private beliefs. And so he, he basically articulated an idea that he could say something that was for the public sphere that he may not have held exactly in the same way in his private life. And so there was a divide between the public and the private. That's Rene Descartes. Another uh, Enlightenment thinker is someone by the name of David Hume who made a pretty significant argument against miracles. David Hume came along and he was one of those that I've mentioned before in sermons and in talks where he essentially made the claim that anything that is supernatural can't be verified by scientific evidence, so we're going to ignore the supernatural. And he made an argument against miracles. 
Hume is a particularly important thinker for philosophy and for theology. Uh, With regard to philosophy, he made this claim, and this is a precursor to some of our uh, 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 postmodern ideas. It kind of jumps the gun a little bit. But uh, he made this argument, that reason ought always to be the slave of the passions. Uh, David Hume's basic case was that this book as revelation can't be absolutely true and can't be authoritative because it doesn't conflate with what science teaches us and would tell us. That's Hume's argument in in against miracles. Another Enlightenment thinker that's important for this discussion is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Our, yeah, it's on the screen. You can write it down if you want to. Rousseau is an interesting character referenced in several textbooks that I'm gonna I'm gonna put in front of you in a little bit. Uh, Rousseau is uh, fascinating. He is famous for the social contract. So philosophically, the way Rousseau described how we ought to interact is we ought to make a contract with kings and with leaders. And much of our political philosophy is shaped by some of the arguments that he made, either in pushback against his arguments or in adaptation of his arguments. One of his famous lines is this, that he argued for the total alienation of each associate together with all his rights to the whole community. That's a fancy way of saying that socialism is the way that we ought to function as a particular group of people. I mean, you ought to give up your rights and I ought to give up my rights for what's best for the whole of the community. So his ideology kind of prefigured some of the socialism that is present in Marxism and communism and other social type philosophies. Reason Rousseau is important for this discussion is because he uh, he argued for the fact that the Bible and the authority of Scripture is not to be held. He just basically said, "Hey, there, there's nothing in this book that ought to guide the way that we live our lives." He wanted us to think from a philosophical and a scientific lens, not from the lens of revelation. Then came along a gentleman by the name of Immanuel Kant, who is uh, the, the, the primary precursor to an outline I'm going to give you in a moment. Immanuel Kant had two words that are, that are a little bit odd, but they'll make sense when I explain them. The phenomenal things, or phenomenal versus noumenal. So he had this idea, Immanuel Kant did, that there are things that we see and that we touch and that we experience, and those are the scientific things. Those are the things that we can study. So for Kant, it was the things that we could know to be true were the things that we could research. And then Kant had this other world, the world of the noumenal, which is the world of ideas. Those are the things like love and experience and and faith and things that, that drive the internal person. So what Kant did is he picked up on that claim that Rene Descartes had had, that you could have a public kind of sphere things that you talked about in public philosophy, but you could hold your own private beliefs and you could separate the two. And Kant picked up on that very idea and developed an ideology that said the public sphere is the sphere of science. It's the sphere of philosophy. It's the place where we're going to talk about facts. It's the place where we're going to talk about things that are absolutely true. But in the realm of ideas or the realm of faith, and Kant didn't have really anything against Christianity. It wasn't like he, he tried to ignore it completely. In fact, he had Christianity in his, in his background. Here's what he did. He just relegated it to that world of personal ideology. You just hold it in your personal sphere. It doesn't come into public discourse. That's what Kant gave us. 
So where this led is a separation from the personal and the public. John Locke, uh, and, and I'm grateful for John Locke. We wouldn't have uh, the Declaration of Independence without John Locke. He's a fantastic political philosopher. But where he kind of harmed biblical Christianity and the authority of Scripture, he harmed us because he made this argument. Even as a Christian, and he was a follower of Jesus, I think, uh, based on his testimonies and writings. But he said that Revelation, the Bible, is to be judged by reason. In other words, what the Scripture says has to be judged by reason. Now, now, if by that we mean Scripture is rational, then I don't have any problem with that. God is logical. God is not irrational. What God says is rational. So when you read this, it, it, it makes sense. But what Locke meant, and certainly what, his, uh, what the folks that followed him meant, is that this book is to be judged by what is reason in the sense of what is scientific, what is philosophical. So once you say that the Bible is judged by something else, then what's going to happen is anything that doesn't fit the framework of science and philosophy is going to say, okay, this book calls for things that are supernatural, tells us things that can't be proven, and so it's going to be relegated to the sphere of the private. Ultimately, what that led to is in your next blank, the rise of scientism. That's actually not a blank. But scientism says this. Scientism says that the only things that are true and certain, the only things that are true and certain, I'm not talking about science. There's a difference between science and scientism. Let me make sure that that's clear. Scientism says that only things that are true and certain must be obtained through a scientific field of knowledge. Science is what uh, uh, Newton gave us, Isaac Newton gave us, and it is observational skepticism. Okay, science, you do, you do a, a field of study, you make a claim, an observation, you test it. it. The scientific method, you make a claim, you test it. It's built on skepticism. Sci- Let me make this very clear. Science and the Bible do not, are not at odds philosophically. They're just not. There are no scientific laws or scientific claims that can be verified with absolute precision that are in discord with what Scripture teaches. Science and the Bible are not in discord. Scientism and the Bible are in grave discord. Scientism flowed out of the Enlightenment and basically makes the argument the only things that are absolutely true are the things that you can prove rationally. That would be mathematically 2 plus 2 is 4. Or things that can be proved scientifically, that's by observation. So like the law of gravity. Those are things that are true. If it's outside of those spheres, say the idea of love or faith or that God exists, you can't prove those or disprove those, by the way, scientifically, observationally, or rationally. It can be proven or disproven. So we're going to put those in a different category. That's what the rise of scientism means. That leads to the next category of history, which is modernism. This is where I've mentioned before the challenge of higher criticism. This is where uh, theologians came along, picked up on those Enlightenment ideas, picked up on those thinkers like Rousseau and Kant and Locke and many, many others. And they came at the Scripture through the lens of, hold on a second, if science can't give us the answer, then we've got to ignore all the things in the Bible that are supernatural. 
We've got to ignore the things in the Bible that can be verified by science. So we're just going to write those out or think that they're out of the line of Scripture. So that's the challenge of modernism in terms of higher criticism. That also led to a minimization of the Bible as inerrant and by extension authoritative. So if the Bible is inerrant and it's God's spoken word, then it's authoritative. But if you take out the idea the Bible is inerrant and you take out the idea of the supernatural, so Jesus didn't walk on water, he didn't rise from the dead, uh, the, the miracles in the Old Testament, New Testament didn't happen, then what does, this, what does it make this? It makes this a book of men and not authoritative and not inerrant. And that's where modernism has left us. Uh, the last... Two categories are postmodernism. That's a blank that you can fill in. The, the postmodernism is a natural extension of modernism. Modernism says, like scientism, that only the things we can know for certain can be known in the rational and known in the scientific. The problem with that viewpoint should be pretty obvious to many of us. There are a lot of things that you can know and know that you know that can't be observed scientifically or proven scientifically or proven rationally, that is, mathematically. Think about the love that you have for a spouse. I mean, where does that come from? How, how do we, I know that's true. I know that's true that I have a love for a child or a grandchild. I know that's true, but I can't prove that scientifically and I can't prove that mathematically. Think about the things you know by way of testimony. You watched something happen. You can tell me that something happened, but you can't go back and verify that through scientific method unless you have it on a camera, right? Can't verify it through scientific methodology or rational explanation, but you know that it happened. So testimony, that's the sort of thing. You can, by the way, you can go, to, you can go uh, be on death row based on somebody's testimony, somebody said what they saw that can't be verified scientifically or verified rationally. So there are many things that we can know that can't be that can't fit in the box of science or reason. So postmodernism came along recognizing that there are many things that you know, that we know, that you can't fit inside those box boxes. But here's the problem with postmodernism. Postmodernism essentially argued that there then because you can't know anything in those boxes. Those boxes, science, rationalism, reason, revelation, all of those, none of them can tell us what is absolutely true. Postmodernism is an argument against metanarratives. Metanarrative being the idea that any religious system can tell us what is absolutely true. So, scientism can't be true, but neither can Christianity. Neither can Islam, neither can communism, neither can any grand overarching statement of what is reality and what is real. That's what postmodernism says. There's an emphasis there in postmodernism on personal truth and individual reader interpretation. Why do I say personal truth? If you listen, if you listen, you can listen to Oprah, you can listen to uh, philosophers of the day. You can listen to people on television and media. And they're going to use language like, you have your truth and I have my truth. You can listen to people in the whole, in, uh, I mean, all kind of spheres. Listen to it in sports. You can listen to it on, in media. Your, you have your truth, I have my truth. Where does that come from? It comes from postmodernism. It's the idea that you and I have different perspectives. You have your perspective. I have my perspective. It's true for you. It's not true for me. What's true for me may not be true for you. And that's postmodernism. That's where we live. 
That's part of the reason why we can have all of this self-identity that's going on with gender and sexuality and identity. I mentioned this book Sunday in my sermon, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman, it kind of makes the case, traces some of these thinkers in the history of how in the world we got to this place in our current society where I can wake up one morning and think I'm a different gender than I am biologically. By the way, that is absolutely an argument against science. It doesn't matter what you do internally, psychologically, you cannot change your chromosomal out, output. You might be able to change the way you appear, but you can't change your genetics. You can't change your plumbing. You can't change your DNA. It, it, no matter how advanced technology makes it so that a man can become a woman or a woman can become a man, no matter how advanced technology makes it, you can't change the chromosomal makeup of how you are wired. That's anti-science. And yet it is, man, to argue against someone claiming to be what they feel to be internally, you're fighting against, fighting against kind of an entire culture that's pushing back. How did we get there? We got there with this move to personal truth. You have what you believe and I have what I believe. Let me give you an outline that is not, is not at all original with me. Uh, it actually originates with a gentleman by the name of Francis Schaeffer in, uh, in books, uh, The God... Uh, he, let me get the books right. It is uh, the God who is there, uh, escaped from reason, and he is there and he is not silent. This is his, um, his complete works. I would recommend Francis Schaeffer, any of you that want to see, particularly those of you that are a little older than me. Um, he was writing in the 60s and 70s, and so he traced all of this cultural phenomenon in the 60s and 70s and many of the art uh, pieces of art that he's going to reference, the music that he's going to reference, the books that he's going to reference, some of you would even know better than I would know in terms of remembrance. He traces this particular shift and he describes it in a two-tiered view of truth. And so in your handout, you're going to see that uh, that begins with values. Let me fill in the bl- have you fill in the blanks and have you fill in the blanks carefully and then I'm going to explain to you what, what this means and why Schaefer put it in these categories. If you will, you see values and facts. I call this in the teaching that I do at the, in theology class and Western history class a fact-value dichotomy. This is essentially what Immanuel Kant gave us. And what uh, Schaefer does is he traces it out to show how this is the particular perspective that we have in society. He's not saying it's the perspective we should have. He's saying this is what has corrupted our version or our understanding of what is true or authoritative. Okay? So you see values. Values are what we think is right and wrong. And then next to that, you should put revelation, but put it in a small r. Small r revelation. And then if you'll move over, you see faith. And then you see the next blank, that should be personal. But that should be personal with a small r, a small p. So you should have values, revelation, faith, personal, and truth with a small t. The bottom line, underneath that line, you should have facts, and then you should have a big R reason. So reason with a big R, capital R. Science, public with a capital P, and then truth. 
So what Schaefer has basically argued as far as the trace point of, of history, philosophical history, is that we have this divide now. The things that are absolutely true, meaning the things that everybody is going to agree on is true, those are the, that's in the world of facts, in the world of reason, in the world of science, and that's what is to be discussed in the public sphere. So in this category of truth, you have mathematical equations. You have scientific laws. That's in this, that realm of truth. Does that make sense? So none of us are really going to disagree in this room that 2 plus 2 is 4. Everybody, whether you're a Christian, a Muslim, unless you're completely irrational or on something, you're going to agree that 2 plus 2 is 4 or that there is a law of gravity. Those are not debated truths. That's what's allowed in the public sphere. All right? The top tier is where you and I live in terms of what we believe in biblical revelation. But the way that that is undermined in our culture today is it's basically given a place, but it's given this little tiny place for us to live. And let me explain what that place is. It's the place of values. It's the place of revelation. So the culture out there Higher education, public education, media, movies, they don't really care if we come in this room and we talk about the Bible as being God's Word. They could care less. They really could. Doesn't matter to them if we're going to say that in this room because it is the realm of faith, revelation, personal truth. So the way they would get around that is say, now that's your personal truth. You, you hold that. As long as you don't encroach on what I want to do, don't have any problem whatsoever. If you go in your church on Sunday and you talk about the things that make you feel good and you live in that world and it is okay. That's the realm of faith, the realm of personal truth. It's where we are. Now, now here's what that does though. That category of understanding truth as being personal doesn't just work for Christianity. They do that with Islam. They do that with all sort of other faith systems. That's how you can get by in our society with believing all sort of different things because it's not in the public sphere. Here's the problem with this. We don't believe that our truth is merely personal and private. If God said it, if God spoke it, if God decides that this is what is right and true, you and I cannot... Just merely be okay with practicing our faith inside these walls. Because if Jesus died on the cross for sinners, he died on the cross not just for us sinners who believe it. He died on the cross for every sinner everywhere. Does that make sense? So while this is the category in which we do exist, it's not the category in which we should exist or allow ourselves to be relegated to this particular limitation. And where it gets really troubling is today when you start saying things that are outside the realm that really do mess with people in our particular society. And when you talk about gender and sexuality and talk about identity. And I mean, the Bible says something very different than what you claim personally. If you really want to trace a fascinating history of that, then you should look at Carl Truman's book on that subject. Let me read one particular section. Which is, uh, which is really fascinating. He talks about authority being, in today's society, personal testimony and expressive individualism. 
So essentially where we live in 21st century America is what is the authority today? The authority today is whatever you want to make yourself to be or believe. So if you want to have red hair, you go paint your hair red. If you want to have blonde hair, but say you have red hair, what you say about your hair is more important than what anybody can see objectively about your hair. Same thing would be true about gender and identity. Psychological, self-expressive individualism. That is what is the authority in our community and culture. And not just because people want to do what they do, sexuality. In other words, enjoy whatever pleasure and whatever framework. Because it's not just about pleasure anymore. It's about identity. Right? It's not just what we want to experience, it's about who we say we are, which gets at the whole root of who we are as humans. We're made in God's image, which is a complete disconnect from what the Bible says about us as humans. Carl Truman's recommendation for the church in all of this is to recognize that we as a church, if we're going to understand what's going on in our world and understand how to deal with what's going on in our world, we need to remember that Christianity is not just shared personal experiences. Like, it's not just about that moment when you came to faith in Jesus. It's not less than that. And I don't want to diminish a personal experience with Jesus Christ. Your Christianity is not less than that. But in order to affect the people around us, in order to share the gospel with people around us, we can't just say, my experience is better than your experience because my experience meets Jesus. Now, that's true because Jesus is real. There's no doubt about that. But if that's the argument we're going to have, then guess what we've missed? We've missed historic Christianity and a Christianity that has roots. The changes that have been wrought in human history, in Christian history, have been wrought by thinkers and Christians who recognize, get this, that, that I read this this afternoon, just before I'm getting ready to teach a, do- a doctrine series. Recognize that Christianity is dogmatic, doctrinal, and assertive. In other words, the biblical narrative rests on and only makes sense in light of a deeper metaphysical reality, the being of God and his act of creation. For us as Christians to have an influence in the world, for us as Christians to help our kids make sense of all the craziness that's going on in our world, For us as Christians to make sense of how we live in this world that doesn't believe anything that we believe, do you know how we survive? We recognize what the Bible teaches about who God is and who we are. I I don't think that we need to be shallower in our faith. I think we need to be deeper in our faith. The better we understand what the Bible says about who God is and who we are, the better we're going to be able to navigate when people outside say things that are in complete contradiction practically and behaviorally. Beyond that, Truman argues something else that I've been preaching on on Sundays. He says that we as a church need to realize we're a community. You know why what we have is better than what anybody else has in the world? You know why that LGBTQ, all those numbers, all those letters are put together? Because they're trying to make relational connections, which by the way don't fit. Truman makes an incredible point about that. They don't all work together. They're very different ideologies, very different practices and claims. Why do they all go together? Because they have similar political goals, recognition and identity. They don't have real community. But guess what? We have real community. 
Not because we're better than anybody else, but because we're forgiven and we have a Jesus who's indwelling us and bringing us into a faith relationship with himself. What we need to be is people who are doctrinally sound and community-driven. Can I get an amen? We love one another and we love anybody that comes into our community. Love them as they are, whatever they are, however they identify. Love them. I'm I'm not saying we don't contradict the way they behave. I'm not saying we don't talk scripture and preach truth. We absolutely do that. We do that clearly. We do that articulately with the pages of scripture. But we do that with the recognition that God loves sinners as they are, where they are, because God, through his son Jesus, wants to change them and make them into someone who is forgiven and redeemed. Folks, part of our problem as Christians is we want to fight a battle that out, we, we ought to fight. But we've got to remember who the enemy is. I preached on that Sunday. It's, it's the satanic forces. It's not the gender confused. They're not our enemies. They're not. Do they need truth? Yes. But you know what they need? As they need truth, a community. They need people who will love them because that's exactly what Jesus did. And that's what Truman is arguing for in his text. Let me give you one illustration and we'll do some takeaways. What, what, let, me, let me try to help all this make sense. How in the world, or, or let, me, let me put it this way. Joe Biden, our president, I'm not going to talk about the challenges you may think he has or all that. When he was vice president, he... He's Roman Catholic. Do you know that, right? He's Roman Catholic. Politically, do you know what his position on abortion is? Pro-choice. Personally, do you know what his position on abortion is? You have any idea? As a Roman Catholic, do you know what his position on abortion is? It's pro-life. Do you know that? How in the world can a Roman Catholic uh, politician have a public position that is in dissonance with, its pri- with his private position. Do you know how that happens? The fact-value dichotomy. One's public philosophy does not have to match one's private belief system. And by the way, you just watch it. That's true of politicians on both sides of the political aisle. It's true of a lot of people in contemporary culture. All you have to do, who you are publicly, doesn't have to be the same as you are privately. The problem with that, obviously, as Christians, is there, that's a hypocritical disconnect. I mean, clearly, we, we get that. Which is why we need to have a total truth perspective. That not only what we believe in Scripture and we articulate and we hold on to, but how we live that out in our faith relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me give you some takeaways. And I'm, I'm past time, or I'm about past time. So, first one, this should be obvious. Because the Bible is authoritative, we're obligated to submit to all of its teaching. We've been talking about that. I will reiterate that over and over again. Listen, we don't have another authority. The authority is not our next polity in the life of our church. The authority is not the Southern Baptist Convention. It is this. It's the Bible. That is our authority. End of story. Second takeaway, we have to guard against the interpretive dissonance between reason and revelation embedded in culture that is shaping or affecting our understanding of Scripture. That's a fancy way of saying that what we have to be careful of is that when we read Scripture, we don't read it through the lens of rationality and reason is king. 
I can give you example after example how we, in fact, I'll try to do that in a few weeks just for the fun of it. I'll I'll give you a story of scripture. I'll ask you for your first impression and thought. And believe it or not, many of us are not shaped by the scriptural framework. We're shaped by our cultural experience, interpretive challenge. And we got to push back against that. Where when we read this book, we don't read it through the lens of science and reason is king. By the way, that's why, that's why you have all those discovery shows that try to make sense of how the miracles took place. How in the world did, the, you know, did, did God part the walls of the Red Sea or part the Red Sea? How did that happen? An east wind blow down and could that be possible? We want to make sense of that because we live in a scientific framework that wants to explain how the miracle happened. I don't know how the miracle happened. I believe it happened because God said it and God doesn't lie. But we're not going to figure it out. Does that make sense? And the reason we try to figure it out is because we live in this world that says we need to figure it out in order to make sense of it. Let me give you a third takeaway. We must hold fast to a presupposition. That's what we come into the text with. A presupposition of the Bible as inerrant and authoritative so that our framework for interpreting and applying Scripture is correct. In other words, when we come to Scripture, our bent needs to be this book is inerrant and this book is authoritative. Not anything different than that. Let me give you a fourth takeaway that is not in your, in your uh, notes. I, I said this is doctrine and devotion. Tonight we've been heavy on doctrine. Okay? Like thinking, challenging, intellectual, historical. Let me remind you of something that's tremendously important. Read the Bible today and trust that God is speaking. Just want to say that out loud. When you pick up the Bible tonight for your devotions or in the morning for your devotions, I want to tell you something. God is speaking through the Bible to you. God spoke it thousands of years ago. He's speaking to you through it. And I can prove it over and over again because of the people that God is changing through the pages of Scripture. So let me give you some resources If you'd like to know more about where we are with regard to sexuality, psychology, um, expressive individualism, the the whole deal with um, identity crisis and gender, Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. I, I, I would love it if all of you would take some time in 2022 to read some good books that challenge your faith and help your faith grow. This would be at the top of my list for that. So Carl Truman, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. If you want an incredible explanation of truth and an accessible explanation of truth, Nancy Piercy and her book, Total Truth. Absolutely fascinating. One of the top five books I've ever read in my life. And her uh, chapter on feminism and uh, and the experience in, in Christian history is utterly astounding. For any of you ladies that have kind of been, kind of wrestled with who in the world are we in this world where, you know, uh, you had the, 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 the pushback against men going to work and women wanting work and all that kind of stuff. Piercy's a Christian. She's a female. She's an author. So she's not pushing back against that women can, can do glorious and wonderful things. She's not like that. She's she not, she not one of those that puts a head covering on and wears a dress and She's not articulating a position that's backward. It's a fascinating chapter, a fascinating section, total truth. And anything by Francis Schaeffer, um, anything by Francis Schaeffer, particularly his books 
the God who was there, and he is there and he is not silent, escaped from reason, or fascinating explanation of how we got to where we are. Really, it's a digest in book form of part of what I talked about tonight. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 